All right. Well, good morning again. This is our last Sunday in our series, How We Got the Bible, and I truly um, hope that it has been helpful. Um, this week, we're going to be covering questions that were submitted over the past couple of weeks of the study, and before we get to those, I do want to say to you, thank you, uh, sincerely thank you for trusting me with such a difficult and important conversation. Um, it does mean a lot to me, and I want to be wise, and I want to be humble in the things that I teach here. Um, I want to be humble and wise in the way that I study those things and in the way that I approach them in preaching, and so thank you. And in saying that, hopefully you will trust me uh, in how I structured our time today. Um, if you were one of the many who submitted questions uh, in an attempt to get as, to as many of those questions asked as possible, I've condensed uh, or combined some of the questions together. So it may not sound exactly like the way that you submitted it, but it's there, Okay. Um, if you're a visitor here, usually we are working verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Uh, and this series is kind of out of the ordinary for us. We do these sorts of things uh, maybe once a year, um, but most weeks we're, we're reading a text and we're covering uh, whatever that text in the book we are looking or working through uh, says. And we unpack it the best that I'm able to, uh, the context contents of the text each week. And so I would invite you to join us starting next week as we work through our series on the book of Acts. But with that being said, we don't have a specific text for this morning because we're covering questions that were submitted. So I'm not going to um, I'm not going to answer or, or, or read a um, specific text to start us off, but I'm going to refer to texts throughout the um, time that we have, okay? So let me get into this. The first question that came in was anonymous, and it simply read this. Who do you think you are? Um, I'm teasing. I'm joking. I'm joking. Okay. I'm joking. Um, no, to start, um, and hopefully, hopefully um, to get us started here, this is going to address a handful of questions that came in, uh, but it would be good for us to review uh, it would be good for us to review some theological terms surrounding the Bible, terms that help us understand what we should do with and how we should approach the Bible. Four words, three, three of the words we've already dug into in the previous weeks, but four words that I think will be helpful to go through, some of them again. And, and hopefully it's helpful that all of these start with the letter I, and so hopefully you can uh, either jot these down or remember uh, the words. But the four words to go through are inspiration, inerrancy, interpretation, and illumination. Now, all four of these are important to understand how we approach the Bible. Inspiration, first one, is the means by which God used humans to write the words of Scripture. How is it that we have this book which is actually a library of books written over hundreds and hundreds of years to different people and in different genres, how did that happen? We looked the last two Sundays at um, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
All Scripture is breathed out or inspired by God. But it's also a human book. So how did God do that? How is it that the Bible can be written by human beings with all of the egos and opinions and prejudices and everything else that comes with being human, but also breathed out by God? I shared two weeks ago that I think the tendency, and probably where I sat for a long time, is the, the belief that God dictated the Scriptures word for word through humans that He used to write it. I, I don't think that is the case now. We see too much humanity in the Bible, like Paul forgetting who he had baptized, or Luke saying that he thought it would be good to research, to study, to compile an account of the story of Jesus. Inspiration is the means by which God used these humans to write the scriptures that we have. How his word was breathed out. And I mentioned that I believe that he did this from a conceptual level. That God did this from a conceptual level. That he guided human minds at the conceptual level. Not, not word for word, but with general notions and broad ideas. And then the authors wrote a message that was consistent with the divine intention. God directing their thinking, God directing their thoughts, not their syllables. So that, this, this part, this topic of inspiration helps answer one of the questions that came in, which is this, in what way then is inspiration similar to prophecy? Now, I think there is some overlap between inspiration and prophecy, but it's not the same. Prophecy is normally in the Bible a word-for-word -word dictation. When a prophet says, uh, thus says the Lord, and then gives the exact words from God to those being addressed. And there are key instances where God commands someone to write down exactly what he directs them to write. Like to Moses in Exodus 34, when, when he commands Moses to write down the Ten Commandments after, after those original tablets that, that were written on by the finger of God had been smashed. Inspiration definitely includes those circumstances, circumstances of, of prophecy that's word for word from the Lord. It includes those. God inspired the human authors to record those events, but also God guides those authors to write other things as well. And there's certainly human dynamic to those things. So there's overlap, but it's not the same. So that's a, that's a brief reminder of what inspiration is. Second is inerrancy. That's the second I word. Inerrancy is the doctrine that the scriptures are wholly without error in their original manuscripts. John Frame says, inerrant means simply freedom from error or untruths. The Bible is true and trustworthy because God, who is the author, is true and trustworthy. And considering that, 
I want to mention to you a book that might be helpful if you would like to dig deeper into this subject. Wink, wink. I'm not bossing you, but if you want to, this is a good book. Five Views on Biblical Inerrancy is a helpful tool. I'm going to mention it again later on. That being said, we have to recognize that throughout the centuries, as we consider inerrancy, centuries of copying and translating the Scriptures, there are things that were added along the way, margin notes, and also things that were translated based off of having less copies of texts. And in all of that, we still have the confidence that Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, are inerrant or without error in the original manuscripts. And although we don't have access to the originals, there are many thousands of fragments of manuscript copies that have been preserved and restored. Copies that have been authenticated and are wholly trustworthy. The intended story and message of the Bible is true and trustworthy. That, that the English text that we read from today, relying on the work of hundreds of linguists and scholars and translators over the past 450 or more years, is a reliable text. It is trustworthy. So then to answer questions how do you handle or approach seeming contradictions in the Bible for someone without a background in theology or biblical languages? How do I keep from struggling with doubt? But that's difficult, right? Because we're human and, and we, don't, we don't want controversy. We don't want contradiction. So it's difficult. And I, tr I truly hope that nothing in this series has caused you to doubt but I do want you to become comfortable with asking questions and seeking out answers that don't just ignore the concerns that sparked the questions in you in the first place. I want to emphasize again, it isn't necessarily appropriate for me to ask, is the Bible I'm holding inerrant? Rather, it is good and appropriate to ask if it is trustworthy and reliable. Can I have confidence that the Bible I'm reading is true? Yes. That it's trustworthy? Yes. Are there apparent contradictions or discrepancies in the Bible? Yes. And without a background in theological studies or even biblical languages, that can feel like a lot. But we have tons of resources that are helpful for us. But even without those, even without those resources to go to, we should always approach those seeming contradictions asking the right questions. Questions like, does this in any way contradict the message of the gospel or the story of God? Or does this relate to any major doctrine? Or is, this, is the story of God diminished by this difficulty in the Scriptures? 
I can tell you I'm not aware of any contradiction or discrepancy in Scripture concerning any major doctrine. So even when we do get to those, that we, those things we can't explain now when we see uh, dimly as through a, a mirror, not face to face, as Paul says, my faith isn't shaken by that. We can have confidence in God's faithfulness to keep His Word that is trustworthy and reliable because He is trustworthy and reliable. The next thing we need to talk about is interpretation. It's the third I, interpretation. Now, if we were to stop at just the first two I's, inspiration and inerrancy, then we've established what the Scriptures are. But we haven't actually talked about what we do with them. If those first two things are true, and I wholly believe that they are, then what? Is that the end of the discussion? We just, we just pick up a copy of the Bible, any translation of the Bible, and everything we read is accurate and reliable. There's an important distinction between inspiration, inerrancy, and interpretation. The Scriptures were breathed out by God and profitable, but that doesn't mean that God inspired the copiers of the Bible. It doesn't mean that the translators of the, of the Geneva Bible or the King James Version, or even the, the, the English Standard Version, or whatever version you prefer, were inspired. Now, do I believe that God has protected His Word throughout the ages? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean there isn't a crucial need for carefulness in reading and study. As hard as we try, humans cannot see everything objectively. We have opinions, we have biases, and there's something, or, or, or there's sometimes bias in the translating of Scripture. That's, fine. That's why you find one word choice in a particular translation and a, and a different word choice in another translation. Now, does that mean I'm saying that, that some of the translators had wicked motives? Absolutely not but they all come to the table with a unique bent on doctrine and interpretation. And so do we. We come to the Bible that way. We come to the Bible with bias. We've been shaped and taught certain things within certain circles, and so we're, we will tend to read the Bible through the lens of our own interpretation or an interpretation that's been endorsed within our circle. I'll give you an example of that. Baptism. Is baptism something that is to be done to infants as a covenantal picture, just as circumcision was in the Old Testament before Christ, or is it something that is to be done after a person believes in Christ as a display of what has happened inter internally in the heart? Well, my personal interpretation is the latter. But there are several that I respect who interpret otherwise. 
that it's now the means of identification in the covenant family. And they defend that interpretation with Scripture. So, so how do we think about that or those things? Well, this way, interpretation. Your interpretation or your favorite theologian's interpretation is just that. It's interpretation. Hopefully, studied, prayerful, careful interpretation. But even when it's all those things, interpretations are not inerrant. Scripture is inerrant. So there are different interpretations, and that's okay when it relates to minor doctrines, things that, that don't affect your salvation. It is concerning and dangerous when it affects major doctrines, like Christ's atonement for sin, His bodily resurrection, or salvation by grace through faith, and other things like that. We should approach the Bible with humility and hold our interpretation with humility. If someone disagrees with, with me on a, on a minor doctrine, if they interpret it differently than I do with conviction that comes from a sincere desire to understand God's Word rightly, that doesn't make them a heretic. There are many doctrines that faithful Christians have disagreed on, and we should be charitable and humble, especially when it comes to secondary or tertiary doctrines. I mentioned to you earlier that the book Five Views on Biblical Inerrancy is a helpful tool. I highly recommend it. In that book, there are five contributors. One gives their position on the nature of inerrancy, and then each of the other four respond to it. And then the next, and the next, until all five get their view and all respond to each view. I highly recommend that book with one caveat. Do not pick up that book and identify the name of the contributor you already agree with. And then just read it with a bias towards that view because it's that person. The book is very helpful. And each contributor in the book is a biblical scholar. Each one of them. And each has something to say that deserves to be heard and considered. So read it with humility. And a heart to learn. And I honestly think it will be helpful. And then read other books that way. Your interpretation and my interpretation are not inerrant. They're interpretations. The last term is illumination. This is the final element of our consideration of how we relate to the Bible and it is so important. I've observed that we have a tendency to mix up or blur inspiration with illumination. Both of those things involve God the Holy Spirit working in the hearts and minds of humans. 
But while inspiration refers to God speaking through human authors, commissioned to write His Word, illumination refers to God speaking to humans that He's created to know Him through His Word. Theologian Robert Raymond says that illumination is the Holy Spirit's enabling of Christians generally to understand, to recall to mind, and to apply the Scriptures they've studied. Michael Bird says concerning illumination that it, quote, refers to the divine enlightening of a person to grasp the meaning of God's Word. God reveals knowledge of Himself through the Holy Spirit who illumines the hearts and minds of believers to understand in ever-increasing measure the truth and significance of divine revelation. He also adds, illumination is how God ensures that the biblical message is not only received but also actualized and effective in the church. So consider for a minute the passage in Luke that we've looked at, where Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with the disciples that are there, the two disciples. And what happens in that story? Jesus teaches them, he shows them how all of the Old Testament scriptures pointed to him. He teaches about himself throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures. And then something wonderful happens. It says that the eyes of their hearts are open to understand and believe. That is illumination. As John Calvin says, the same Spirit, therefore, who spoke by the mouth of the prophets must penetrate our hearts in order to convince us that they faithfully delivered the message with which they were divinely entrusted, end quote. And remember, that is exactly, illumination, that's exactly what Jesus said the Spirit's role would be when He said that He would send the Spirit in John uh, chapters 14 through 16. In John 14, 26, it says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. If you remember, I've mentioned throughout this series, the Bible was written for you, but not to you. It was written to specific people in specific times, but God intended it for us. That we would know Him through it. And so we trust the Spirit to illuminate it in our hearts just as, it, as He did in the hearts of those who lived 2,000 years ago. So that's an overview of inspiration and inerrancy and interpretation and illumination. And hopefully some of you heard your questions mentioned and covered in, in, uh, through that. But a few more things that were brought up as questions. So we have this canon this grouping of books that we call the Bible in a specific order of books. Collection of books in the Old and New Testament. Is that closed? Is the canon closed? Meaning, could we stumble upon another book that we wanted to include or that should be included in the Scriptures? And who decided on the order that we have? 
Well, first, the order we have for the Old Testament, as I mentioned, is different than the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible, for one thing, has First and Second Chronicles at the end of their Bible. So why is ours laid out the way that it is? Well, I've learned that primarily it's a practical laying out of the books. The Old Testament is laid out in a topical way. That's why First and Second Chronicles come after First uh, and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings because they cover similar topics. Even though First and Second Chronicles was written hundreds of years later, and they're from therefore from a different perspective and likely recounting to those people in that time hundreds of years later a different purpose. Not just that, but Hebrew and Greek are, are, are just written differently. Hebrew doesn't have any vowels. So, so more words and books fit onto one scroll than when you write it all out in Greek does have vows. We look at our New Testament, again, it's practical. You have the Gospels, Acts, which describes the beginnings of the Christian church, and then Paul's letters from longest to shortest, and then, then other apostolic letters, longest to shortest, and then the book of Revelation. There's no order of when it was written. And so, is that it? We have this canon. Is that it is the canon closed, and what do we do with other writings that we have or, or could be found later? I would answer that first by saying, I believe the canon is closed. We can say with confidence that we know of other writings that are not included in the canon of Scripture that we call the Bible. Even from the New Testament, we know of other writings, apostolic writings. Paul tells the Colossians to make sure they read a letter that he had written to the Laodiceans. He reminds the Corinthians about things that he originally told them in a first letter that we don't have. We don't, we don't have those and there's no record of them anywhere. But will we include them as canonical if they were found? No. I'll, I'll get to why in just a moment. But, but another part of that, what do we do with the Apocrypha? Maybe you have a background in the Catholic or Orthodox Church, familiar with the Apocrypha. Maybe you're not and you're like, what does that word mean? Those books that are put between the Old and New Testament in some Bibles, that's the Apocrypha. Should those be included in the canon? Are they inspired? Are they referenced in books that, that we have in the canon of Scripture? Well, let me start by answering that last question. Yes, we do have references to apocryphal books within the New Testament canon. You might be familiar with the book of Jude quoting the apocryphal books of uh, Enoch and the Assumption of Moses. So Jude uses historical events that are recorded in non-canonical apocryphal books to make points to his readers. 
We also see Jesus participate in an apocryphal Jewish festival in John 10, where John says that Jesus went to the temple at the Feast of Dedication. Well, you and I know that feast better as Hanukkah, which is a celebration and commemoration of historical events that are recorded in the apocryphal books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees. So Jesus celebrated and commemorated along with his Jewish family. That's not a celebration that was ever celebrated in the Old Testament. It doesn't happen until 1st and 2nd Maccabees. So what does this tell us about the value of apocryphal writings? Well, I would say that these extra writings, whatever they are, are worthy of reading. And we have to acknowledge that the Apocrypha was incorporated into Bible translations for a long time. Not necessarily because those books were ever deemed to be inspired, but but because they were respected as historical religious texts. In fact, when Jerome translated the Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Bible, he classified the Apocrypha not as books of the canon, but as books of the church. And just just a second of American history for us this morning. The first major English translation of the Bible, which is the Geneva Bible, which predates the King James Version by more than 50 years, is the Bible that was brought over on the Mayflower the first English Bible in North America, and it included the Apocrypha. In fact, most Bibles included the Apocryphal books in a section of their own, distinct from Old and New Testament, until around 1600 A.D. And so why are those specific books not considered canonical? Why is the canon closed? And my answer for you would be church history. We have writings that confirm, and we know that there there was a canon of scriptures accepted by the church far before Constantine was emperor, and the canon, which, which of all of the many writings were the unique divinely inspired writings, that list was consistently agreed upon. There are lists by ancient fathers that include the accepted, inspired writings, and the Apocrypha is never included in those. I think we can confidently agree that if there was a gospel account or an apostolic writing that was believed to be inspired, the early church would have embraced it wholeheartedly. And so the canon, as we have it, is closed. We have what we need, and I believe what God has given to know His story and to know Him. Now, with all of this, we want to make this practical. So how does this all apply? As we're coming to the end of this study here, how how does all of this apply to me on a daily basis? Someone asked, what are helpful and unhelpful ways to think about and approach personal Bible study? And what are your thoughts on study Bibles? Well, as for personal Bible study, I would say, do it. 
Now, what's the best way? Is it, is it reading through the Bible from front to back? Is it um, the Bible in a year plan that picks from different sections and genres each day? Honestly, I think either of those are good ways. And, and the best Bible reading plan is the one that you will actually do. I believe we should be getting God's Word into our hearts. But as we do that, I want to encourage you again, find out who that text was written to. And find out why that text was written to whoever it was written to. Hopefully that makes sense. So, so the Jeremiah text that I mentioned a few weeks ago, I know the plans I have for you. Who was it written to? It was written to God's people in exile. And why was it written to those people? It was to let them know that God had not forgotten them and would bring them back out of exile. Therefore, that text gives us hope that God absolutely cares for His people and does not forget His people. But it doesn't tell me that God has a job in line for me that is going to make me the most joyful or wealthy. It wasn't written to you, but it was written for you. It was written for us. And what do I think of study Bibles? Study Bibles, if you don't know, are larger Bibles that have commentary. They have, they have notes about the text that you're reading. So you'll have text up here and then a lot of notes on the bottom of each page. And so you read John 3.16 and there's a note for that verse to explain what is happening. And that can be very, very helpful. But you have to treat a study Bible the same way you treat a pastor's teaching. How you should be treating my teaching. Understanding that there is interpretation happening. Every single commentator, every single contributor to every single study Bible has an interpretive bias. I have a bias. Every single one of my sermons is coming from a person with bias. And so you should take my sermons and study Bibles the same exact way, knowing that. You shouldn't just read one study Bible note and say, that's the truth. That's inerrant. That helped me. No, like, remember, that's not Scripture. It, it may be bound in the same book that you have Scripture in, but it's not Scripture. It's an interpretation. And although it's helpful, keep studying. Read multiple views. Consider various understandings and be humble. And while we're there, what about systematic theologies? A systematic theology is a, a, a big book that works through doctrines and defines them. So are they helpful? Absolutely, they're helpful. A doctrine is what the Bible teaches about any given topic. 
So a systematic theology book can be helpful to answer what does the whole Bible teach about justice? Or what does the whole Bible teach about salvation? But again, these are all written with bias. And so to give you an example, Wayne Grudem, whose systematic theology I have used a lot, has a, defin a definition of illumination, what we just talked about, that is based on his bias as a charismatic believer, his belief in the continuation of all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That interpretation directs his understanding of what illumination is. And every commentary or every systematic theology writer or every pastor, every sermon preacher is the same with different interpretations. And so to finish us off here, mostly, I think it's best to keep the whole Bible together, to read it through and in the midst of a community of believers with the guidance and help of the Holy Spirit illuminating it, working through it again and again and again and again. Those other things are helpful and should be used in the right ways. But, but God's Word was given to us that we would read through it in the midst of gospel community in the midst of a community of believers with the guidance and help of the Holy Spirit illuminating it, working through it again and again and again. It is a gift. God's Word is a gift for us and to us. The Bible is God's message for us. is a gift, and we should treat it as a gracious gift. Our desire is to know God. That's our desire. And to believe in Him and to trust in Him. He has graciously revealed Himself ultimately through the Son, Jesus Christ. And the Scriptures are the story of that. All of the scriptures are an arrow to Jesus, who is God's means of redeeming mankind and reconciling the world, all things to himself. We're going into a time where we remember that through the Lord's Supper. Each week we take the bread and the cup as a reminder of the sacrifice of Jesus. His body was broken. The bread represents that. His blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, and the cup it represents that. It reminds us of that. And so as we come, as you come and receive the bread and the cup, and then you go back to your seats, and as we sing, and as we wait to take the bread and the cup together, let's remember with humility and with thankfulness that we have a Savior whose story we know, a Savior that we love, and that who loved us more than we could ever comprehend love being, and gave himself for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace, your good 
and everything you do is good. And God, again, we thank you for your word. It is a gracious gift that you have entrusted to us. Pray for your help, that we would be a people who desire to know you through your word. That we'd be a people who wouldn't be afraid of the questions that come up. That we wouldn't be afraid to dig in. And that through it, again and again, we would find you. That we would know you and love you and worship you through it. And that you'd be glorified among these people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.